All right, uh, so we haven't been in, uh, in John since about Thanksgiving, so let me remind you. John chapter 6, Jesus is in Galilee, which is his home territory. And uh, chapter 6 has both, we see Jesus kind of at the height of his popularity, his ministry that's in Bethsaida, that, um, that pink star up there. And then he goes to Capernaum the next day. The crowds want to make him the king. He withdraws. He goes to Capernaum the next day, that yellow dot. And uh, he's in a synagogue, and he preaches what is his most offensive sermon. And part of it, he says, I'm the bread of life, and if you want to have eternal life, if you want to live, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And uh, according to John chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples turn around and, and leave. They, they bail on him as popularity plummets just in that 12 or 18 hours period. And he, to the point that he asked the 12, his closest friends and closest followers, do you all want to leave too? And they say, where, where, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. And so that's how chapter 6 ends. Jesus in his hometown, home territory at least, with a reduced public following. And that's where we'll pick up in chapter 7. So after this, those events of chapter 6, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near... Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even now his own brothers did not believe in him. We'll pause there. So this, these events take place about six months after chapter 6. There's about a six-month gap. The Feast of or Festival of Tabernacles is the last of three annual festivals that the Jews held. So the first one was Passover. That's where, that was around the time of chapter 6. That's in the spring. This is late September, sometime in October, the Festival of Tabernacles, which is on the heel of uh, the heels of, of the harvest. It's the most joyful of the three festivals. It was one of the three times during the year that Jewish men were supposed to come back to Jerusalem uh, for worship. And so Jesus' brothers, and the, I guess they're his half-brothers, they have the same mom, different dad than him, and he, they say to him, he has at least four of these brothers and half-brothers, and they say, you should go to Jerusalem. There's going to be a huge crowd. You've got all of these pilgrims who are coming to celebrate the festival. Things didn't go so well back in the spring in Capernaum. You lost some people. Here's an opportunity for you to get them back. Go perform some miracles. You want to be a public figure. This is what public figures do. They take advantage of opportunities when there's going to be a large crowd gathered. You can uh, demonstrate, show them what you have, and begin to build your following back. And Jesus doesn't want to go. Uh, the last time we saw Jesus in Jerusalem was in chapter 5, and he healed someone on the Sabbath. He healed someone who'd been, who had been lame for 40 years, and he has a guy pick up his mat and carry it, and the religious leaders see this guy carrying a mat, and that's, a, that's breaking their, their rules, not breaking God's, but breaking their rules, and they say, who told you to do that? And the guy says, well, the, the man who healed me, and they find Jesus and say, did you heal on the Sabbath? And he says, yeah, and they, well, that's a violation. You're breaking the law, and Jesus' justification for healing on the Sabbath, doing work on the Sabbath, he says, well, I'm, I'm, he makes himself equal with God. He says, well, God, the Father works on the Sabbath, and so I do too. And so now they don't just want to persecute him, they want to kill him because he's blaspheming. He's making himself equal with God, and he did that. And so he hasn't gone back to Jerusalem, according to John. 
And so he's staying up in the northern area in Galilee, not because he's scared, but because his time hasn't come. If you read through John, one of the words that you see often is hour, H-O-U-R, and that refers to the time of Jesus' death. And a lot of what he does is governed by his sense of that hour, of that time. And he doesn't, he doesn't move except kind of in, a, in submission to that hour as determined by his father. And so it's, it's not, he says, I, I, I'm going to stay in Galilee now. And his brothers are saying, that doesn't make any sense. You need to go to Jerusalem because you're a public figure. And that's what public figures do. They show up when there's a large crowd. Verse 6, therefore, Jesus told them, his brothers, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm, going, I'm not going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After Jesus had said this, he stayed in Galilee. So he resists their suggestion. I don't think their suggestion was made. Um, I, I think it was sincere. I'll say that. I don't think their motivation was great. But I think it was sincere. I don't think they were trying to get Jesus in trouble. Uh, it's an honor-shame culture. Jesus is the oldest son, so he has a place of prominence in the family. So uh, if things are, are looking bad for Jesus, that reflects poorly on the family. And if things look up for Jesus, that reflects well on the family. So him losing a bunch of followers in their home area, that's going to make all the brothers look bad too. And if he goes to Jerusalem and he rebuilds his brand and gets more guys following him, then that's going to look well. That's going to look good for the family. So I think that's their motivation. But again, I think their hearts are sincere. They don't believe in him at this point. But after his resurrection, we know at least two of them do begin to follow him. James and Jude, they both wrote some New Testament letters. But Jesus says, regardless of kind of the, the why, I'm, I'm not going. The time's not right for me. It's not the right time for me to go to Jerusalem. Y'all can go whenever you want. The world doesn't hate you, implication, because you don't believe in me. But the world does hate me, and it's not the right time. The circumstances aren't right for me to go to Jerusalem, and he honors that. He stays in Galilee for, I think, probably just a handful of days. I don't think he's there for very long at all because what we read in chapter 10 is, However, after Jesus' brothers had left for the festival, Jesus went also, not publicly but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him, and some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So first, we see Jesus wasn't paranoid. The religious leaders were, in fact, after him, and the crowds were divided in their opinions of him. And we'll see next week when he's at the festival how that plays out with these crowds. I think when we read that, the thing that gives us heartburn is, well, did Jesus lie? He told his brothers he wasn't going to go, and then he goes a few days later. Does that make Jesus a liar? And the answer is no. What, what we see here is the same dynamic that we saw back in chapter 2. If you remember way back then, Jesus' first miracle in John, he's in Cana at a wedding with his mom and his brothers and his disciples, and the, they run out of wine at the reception. And his mom says to him, hey, they ran out of wine. And he says, what does that have to do with me? Why are you getting me involved? My hour has not yet come. There's that idea. My hour has not yet come. But then he turns water into wine anyway. This is a very similar situation. He says to his brothers, I'm not going. And then he winds up going anyway. What's going on there? And John, one of the most important features of Jesus' life is he only does what he sees the Father doing. 
He lives his life in obedience and submission to the Father. So it doesn't matter if his mom asks him to get involved. That's not a good enough reason for him to get involved. It doesn't matter if his brothers ask him to do something. That's not a good enough reason to do something. It doesn't matter if it's the festival of tabernacles. That's not a good enough reason to go to Jerusalem. He's not driven by external circumstances at all. He's only led by the Father. And so what he's saying to his mom in chapter 2 is, I'm not going to do this because you're asking me as my mom. If the Father wants me to, then I will. And that's what he's saying to his brothers. I'm not going to Jerusalem the way y'all want me to go. I'm not going publicly, and I'm not going with y'all. If the Father wants me to go, then I'll go when he wants me to and in the way that he would have me, and which turns out to be in secret. And again, next week we'll see what secret looks like. It, it's not the same. His brothers, I, I don't think they were demonic at all, but it's similar to that temptation that Jesus faces in the wilderness where Satan says to him, hey, why don't you get up on the highest point of the temple and jump off? God won't let you get hurt. And so that will draw this huge crowd. Everybody will see how special you are. It'll be an instant following. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. That's similar to what the brothers are saying. Hey, there's going to be a huge crowd. Go do some tricks. Perform some miracles. You can get a huge following. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not, that's not what I'm doing. That's not the way, that's not the, the path the Father has for me. So his no is genuine and sincere, and he honors it. He doesn't go with the brothers, and he doesn't go, I think, for several days. And when he goes, he doesn't go in the way that the brothers would have him go, which is publicly, he goes in secret. The thing I want us to focus on this morning is the idea of time. You probably know this. There's two concepts of time in the New Testament, and you see that kind of playing out here in Jesus' exchange with his brothers. There's calendar time or watch time, the Greek word for that is chronos, where we get chronology from. That's how we measure and keep track of time. But there's also circumstantial time, the right time, the opportune time, and that word is kairos. Sometimes kairos means calendar time, but it can also have this other significance of the fullness of time or when the time is right. And all of you have made decisions around kairos moments before. You've all done that. There have been th- many of you have proposed to someone and you didn't, you didn't throw a dart at a calendar and say, that's going to be the day that I propose. You waited until the relationship was right. And that's how you knew. It had very little to do with what time it was on your watch and everything to do with the circumstances of the relationship. Maybe you've, similar when you've talked to an employer, or some of y'all when you've talked to your parents and you've asked for things, most of you wait until it's an opportune time to do that. Hey, they're in a good mood, so now I'm going to ask them for money. Or whatever that happens to be. It has nothing to do with the watch and everything to do with the circumstances. And that's the kind of time that God operates on. God operates and governs based on Kairos time. But we live based on Kronos time, and we have to. We have to live according to watches and calendars. That's part of how we navigate this world, and that's not bad at all. But it can create tension when we're in relationship with someone who doesn't wear a watch. And you've, been, you've known people like that. But this person who doesn't wear a watch is God. And he doesn't keep a calendar. And so that can create some tension for us because we do both of those things. We do wear a watch and we do keep a calendar. Second Peter 3, the word time doesn't appear, but I think you can see the tension between the way we mark time and the way God marks time in this passage. 
Peter opens, he says, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. What he's saying is God doesn't keep time the way we do. He doesn't care how many times the earth revolves around the sun. That means nothing to him. He doesn't care how many times the earth spins on its axis. That means nothing to him. How many times the moon orbits around the earth. None of those things mean anything to him. He created all of those things, but he stands outside of them. They don't affect him. To say God is eternal is to say he's timeless. And so a thousand years or a day, it's the same to him. Those those things don't impact the way he looks at and governs the world. But, But for us, we say, well, God's being slow because we do keep track of the number of times the earth goes around the sun and the number of times the earth spins on its axis and the number of times the moon orbits the earth. We, we pay attention to all of those things and that's how we keep time. And so based on that, God is slow. Peter's writing this about 1900 years after Jesus' resurrection and people are saying, you said he was coming back. It's been a century. Where is he? And now we're 1900 years after that. It seems slow to us and God's like, it's only been a weekend. It's been a couple of days. For us, it's been 2,000 years. The way God keeps time is based on circumstances. God doesn't want anyone to die. He wants everyone to have the opportunity to say yes to him. And so he's not looking at a calendar. He's looking at hearts. And he wants to know, has the gospel been preached to all nations? Has everyone on the planet had an opportunity to hear the gospel in their heart language and respond to Jesus? If the answer is no, then they haven't had an opportunity to respond to him, to repent and to to live. He doesn't care what the calendar says. He cares about the opportunity those people have to say yes to him. And so he waits. And he's not being slow. The circumstances aren't right. It feels slow to us. But from his perspective, it's not slow or fast. It's just the circumstances aren't yet lined up in the best possible way for Jesus to return. And that's the tension for us that we live in. We use a watch and a calendar, and God doesn't. He's looking at hearts and circumstances. And so that can create some problems for us. Or again, tension is maybe a better word. So January 6th, first Sunday of the new year. You're thinking probably about Kronos. New year, you're about to, some of y'all go back to school tomorrow. Some of y'all started a couple of days ago. Everybody's getting back in the swing of things. A couple of things for you to think about as you serve in God, this Kairos God in 2019. First thing I would encourage you to do is to submit your chronos to the Lord. And most of us don't do that. Most of us don't regularly say to God, my hours and my days and my weeks and my months are yours. How do you want me to use them? For most of us, our hours and our days and our weeks and our months are already spoken for. So the idea of committing them to the Lord seems silly to us because we're already booked and in some cases we're already double booked. There's no room for God in that. We're missing the point. Time is a gift and God asks us to steward it and expects us to steward it just like he expects us to steward our money and our gifts and our talents and our opportunities. He would say, well, what did you do with the time that I gave you? And for many of us, the answer isn't great. We're doing what's urgent. We're not necessarily doing anything that has eternal value. We're just doing what's what's right in front of us. And 
The idea of intentionally submitting our time to the Lord, again, doesn't even cross most of our minds. And it's not something that you can do today for the next year. I would encourage you on a regular basis, daily even, when you wake up to say, God, today's yours. How do you want me to use it? And in your mind, you're thinking, it doesn't matter what he says. It's already full. I would encourage you to begin that, even if it seems like just an exercise initially. Begin to do that. God, how do you want me to use my time? It's yours. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you just pray that. God, by day's yours. What does it need to look like? What do you want me to do? He's not going to tell you to not go to work, most likely. He's certainly not going to tell you to not go to school. So what are you going to do? You give him an opportunity to lead you and to speak to you. And you say, well, for many of us, the idea of submitting our time to the Lord, we don't do it. And the reason we don't do it, honestly, is because we're afraid he's going to put something else on our plate. We don't trust him. And so we don't give him the opportunity to speak. And that says more about how we view God than it does anything else. We don't trust him as a good father to speak to us about our time. We're afraid of what that means if we give him access. And again, I would encourage you to begin to invite him in. And if he asks you to do something and you can't, what you say is, God, I don't know how to say yes. Help me. I'm willing to say yes. I don't know how to say yes. And if asking you to cut something, God, I don't know how to say no. I don't know how to cut that. I'm willing. I don't know how to cut that. You've got to help me. And he will on both counts. There's got to be a place for us where we begin to submit that to the Lord. For many of us, we actually hold our time more tightly and more closely than we hold even our money. And I want to encourage you this year to begin to invite him in to your calendar. Second thing I would say is remember that God is a kairos God. He, he, that's the time he works off. God governs based on kairos, and so that means you're going to have to wait. He doesn't care what the calendar says, and he doesn't care about your watch. He cares about hearts and circumstances, and so that means we have to wait. And what's tricky is we never realize it was a kairos moment until we're looking back. For us, the best moment is now, always. It's always now. That's always the answer. And for God, it's not usually now. And so that tension of having to wait and feeling like God's being slow, he's delaying. It creates disappointment. It creates frustration. There's a couple of verses there. As you're waiting for the right time, Peter says, humble yourself before the Lord. And at the right time, at the Kairos moment, he will lift you up. Humble yourself. Don't think about groveling. Think about relying on, depending on. That's what you do. As you're waiting, you trust him. God, I don't, does that make sense? I feel like you're being slow. But I'm going to trust that you're a good father and you're going to work everything out. Paul says in Galatians, don't grow weary in doing well. At the right time, at the Kairos moment, you'll reap a harvest. So as you're waiting, you keep doing good. You don't quit. You don't take your ball and go home. You remain faithful. At times this year, you're going to be waiting for a Kairos moment. You don't know when that's going to come. It has nothing again to do with the calendar and everything to do with hearts and circumstances. And so as we're waiting, we want to re rely upon the Lord, trust him, depend upon him, and we want to continue to do good, to be faithful to what he's put in front of us. Also keep in mind this year that just like God works off of Kairos moments, so does the devil. In Luke 4, after he tempts Jesus... We read that the devil withdrew from Jesus and waited for a more kairos moment. He waited for a more opportune time to tempt him. 
Peter says the devil is like a lion prowling around looking for someone to devour, and that someone is you. He's looking to devour you. Do you know when an opportune time is? Do you know when the devil, when he looks at you, when he sees you ripe for temptation? Do you know when and where you're vulnerable to him? If you don't, you need to figure that out. Everybody's vulnerable when they're isolated. That's a universal. Whether that's kind of physically isolated from people, but you can be in a room full of folks and still be isolated if you're not letting anybody in. You're vulnerable. Nobody's strong enough to withstand temptation on their own over time. You weren't, you weren't created to do that. If you're isolated, you're vulnerable. Some people are vulnerable when they're tired. We knew a couple, and they said, no heavy lifting for us after 8 p.m. When we're tired, we're grouchy, we're going to say things we don't mean, we're going to make bad decisions, so we don't have any significant discussions after 8. It's just wise. They're avoiding all of that temptation to sin by just saying, we're not going to talk to each other about things that are significant after 8 because we're too tired to do that. Some people are tempted uh, after a big win. There's this sense of we kind of let our guard down. I deserve to celebrate. And for some people, that opens them up to a world of temptation. For other people, it's when they've been hurt, when they had a bad day. I don't know what it is for you, but you need to know what it is for you because the devil knows what it is for you. He's been tempting people a whole lot longer than you've been resisting temptation. And he's really good at it. So he knows where you're vulnerable. You don't need to be scared. You just need to be aware. He knows where you're vulnerable, and so you need to know where you're vulnerable because if you don't, that just makes you more vulnerable. And so before the Lord, you needed to be honest and say, and you can look back at your own track record and say, when do I blow it? When do I tend to get in the most trouble? Is it when I'm with a certain group of people? That maybe is a clue that that's a place where you're vulnerable with that group of people. So what does it look like for you to maybe put a few guardrails up? In the moment, it's not about your willpower. It's about relying on the Holy Spirit. He's the one that provides a way out for us. But there's wisdom in preparing yourself for that. If you know you're vulnerable when you're traveling and you're in the hotel room from 10 to midnight, then for goodness sakes, let somebody know that you're traveling and from 10 to midnight, you're vulnerable. Don't try to handle that by yourself. If you know you're vulnerable after you've had a terrible day at work because you pass one liquor store and two bars before you get home, let somebody know you had a terrible day before you get in the car so they can help you. Don't try to do it on your own. Put up a few guardrails. You can get around anything. If you're intent on sinning, you're going to sin. There's not enough checks that you can put in place. But if your heart is for righteousness... There's some wisdom in preparing for those times when you're going to be vulnerable. You can't prevent all of those times. There are going to be times where you're weak. But there's some guardrails that you can put in in place for when you are weak. So you're less prone to making a bad decision. So as you think about this year, would you be willing to commit your chronos to the Lord? It's going to be a huge step of faith for some of you. To actually trust God with your calendar. Could you do that? Would you do that? Will you remember? He's a Kairos God. So you're going to have to wait. And when you're waiting. 
Stay humble. Rely upon him. And don't get worn out doing good. Continue to be faithful. Also be aware that the enemy is a kairos enemy. He looks for our points of vulnerability, and that's when he tempts us. So guard your heart for those times. Let's take a few minutes and pray. If you're helping with ministry, if you'd come forward, that'd be great. I'll give you two options. One, it's the one I would encourage, is for you to receive prayer this morning from these teams. I would say, um, you know, we'll pray with you about anything, anything going on in your life, any area where you're asking God to get involved. We want to pray with you about those things, specifically based on what we've talked about today. For some of you, the idea of submitting your chronos to, the, to God, is, it's mind-blowing. Even if you do it, you feel like I'm going to be done by Wednesday or Thursday. I just have too many things going on. I would encourage you, if that's where you are, to let these guys pray with you. They're not going to t- nobody's going to tell you what to do, but they're going to pray for God to show you how to do that, to give you grace to submit your time to him. For some of you, you know where you're vulnerable, and you know those times are approaching, or those circumstances are approaching. And I would encourage you to let people pray with you as well, that God would strengthen you in those moments of vulnerability. Being vulnerable is not a sin at all. It's being vulnerable as part of being human. Sin is sin. Vulnerability is not. That's nothing that you need to be ashamed of. Let people stand with you in that. Your other option, and I would encourage this as well for students and adults, is to submit and commit your year to the Lord. If you were here last week, we uh, took some time and asked the Lord you know, what he would say to us for 2019. This isn't that. This is you thinking through the different aspects of your life, your home, your heart, your work, your school, decisions, health, finances, all of that, and intentionally on January 6th, before the year really gets started, saying, God, I'm submitting this to you, I'm committing this to you, I'm surrendering this to you. And you can, there may already be some hopes or some dreams or some ideas that you have in those areas, and you can begin to pray those and commit those to the Lord as well. It's just a way of inviting God in from the beginning. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and that you would speak to us now. I pray for those, um, for each of us, I pray that we would commit and submit, surrender our years to you. You're the only one that knows, and so we want to yield to you because you're a good father and we can trust you. We can trust you with the things that are the most important to us. And I pray for our students and our adults in this room that we would each trust you with all of those primary loves in our life. And God, I pray for people who do struggle with the idea of submitting their time to you. And that could be a risky venture. And I pray that small steps of faith today would be rewarded and met by you uh, with great love and power. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You guys can stand and respond as you feel led to do so.